Well, it's wonderful to see all your faces. I hope you guys have a great new year and good Christmas. Hope you got to enjoy the snow. You know, now it's just cold and sad and there's no snow, which is not fun. Um, yeah, I'm just so happy to see all of your faces and uh, have a couple things that I want to kind of um, bring your attention to before we start. Um, one is there's a Valley Church Women's Event this month. On which day, babe? January 22nd. At what time? 10 a.m. January 22nd. I knew those details just slipped me for a little bit. Sorry. Um, Second thing is it's a new year, and I'd love to invite you to join me um, in reading through the Bible this year. Maybe you already have a plan, and that's wonderful. Keep doing it. Colby says he's out, which I get. The Bible's, I get it, man. I know. It's long. It's reading. And anyways, um, if you want to follow Jesus and read the Bible this year, um, uh, there's a plan that I love called the Read Scripture Plan. Um, they have an app that you can download for your phone, and it has the Bible text on it. And what I love about it, though, is just it gives you just a reading plan to read a few chapters every day. It doesn't take super long. Um, but Read Scripture in particular gives links in app to videos from the Bible Project. So we've talked about the Bible Project 100,000 times, but they make videos that help you help us see how the Bible is one beautiful story that leads to Jesus. And they have videos that kind of trace the theme of each book and kind of the literary design and also the overall themes of the Bible. So in that Read Scripture app, um, they will, at certain points of your reading, it will give you a video to watch. I really love it. Been doing it for a while. Um, so if you don't have a plan and you want to read the Bible this year, Read Scripture is a great option. Um, speaking of apps, the Bible Project just came out with a new app, and it looks amazing. I was kind of exploring around this morning. They have a place for you to read the Bible. They have a place where you can see all their videos, and then they have these two other sections. One is called, I think, Journey, where it's basically this um, section that they're going to kind of add to as they release more content that's just going to be your journey through understanding the story of the scriptures, and it looks really special, so I'd highly recommend, even right now, you have my permission to download it and don't listen to a word I say. Just like play with that app while we're in here, and it'll be really great. Um, so yeah, Bible Project app. <laughs> so today, um, if you are going to listen and not be on the app right now, we're going to pick up where we left off in our teaching through the book of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter 13. Um, we have been walking through kind of the first big set of parables where Jesus uses these stories to give us kind of some mental pictures of what his kingdom is like. Um, we read earlier in Matthew 13 that Jesus uses these parables not necessarily to help everyone understand better, but actually to make things a bit more confusing or kind of interesting at first, so that if people are actually truly interested and humble, they will kind of lean in to Jesus and ponder and ask questions and then understand who Jesus is and what he means. Um, so if you happen to miss any of the other teachings from Matthew 13 on why Jesus uses parables and then the teachings through them, you can check our podcast for those and catch up. I will very, very quickly and maybe simplistically summarize what some of them have said so far. Um, Jesus has told us in these parables that his kingdom is not for everyone, meaning that not everyone will actually come into his kingdom. Some will refuse to join, some will want to, but actually not really all that much want to. Some will start to join, but will kind of be pulled back out by the world. Um, he's also shown that the kingdom is seemingly small and insignificant, at least compared to the way the kingdoms of the world operate at that time, like a tiny mustard seed that will actually grow up into a huge tree and provide life to those around it, or like 
practically invisible yeast that creates life inside of a bread dough that it's worked into. Jesus' kingdom is inconspicuous at first glance, but is actually incredibly powerful and fruitful. Um, on that note, on the kingdom of heaven, I kind of want to just review that of what that phrase or that word means really quickly. Um, it's one of those Christian-y biblical phrases that we've said like a hundred times as we've been teaching through this chapter. And so um, I want to talk about what it means when we say it. Um, when Jesus or the gospel authors use that term, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, they are referring to the incoming or the inbreaking rule, reign, authority, lordship of Jesus in heaven, in, on earth. They're referring to the inbreaking rule and reign and authority of Jesus. So backing way up, this will be quick, God's people, Israel, were supposed to be ruled by God himself as their king. They essentially um, rebelled and asked for a king like all the other nations had, a king who was flesh and blood, a human, to lead and protect them. And it went really poorly for Israel. All of their kings were flesh and blood, sinful humans, and they led Israel away from following God. Um, in one of the most important and beautiful moments in scripture, um, God actually promises one of these kings of Israel, King David, um, that in spite of his own failures, David's failures, and in spite of Israel's disobedience, God would actually raise up one of David's offspring to become the king of Israel, and it would, he would be Israel's king forever. And God actually says that this offspring would be his own son, God's own son. Um, as Israel's disobedience continues and worsens after David, they are captured and exiled, taken out of the land that God had led them to. The Old Testament was full of prophetic warnings that this would happen to Israel if they continued to disobey God. But the Old Testament is also full of prophetic reminders of hope that this exile would not last forever, that God would actually restore Israel back to himself, that he would raise up this king from David's line to deliver Israel from their enemies and bring them back under his own good rule and reign that he would save them and also invite all these other nations into this kingdom of God where he would rule with justice and righteousness. The Old Testament ends with no such deliverance taking place yet, no king from David's line to rescue them. And as we have hopefully made clear in our teaching through the Gospel of Matthew in the last couple of years, Matthew, in no uncertain terms, is, I think, masterfully making the case that Jesus is this king that Israel has been waiting for. He's the king from the line of David. He is the continuation and the fulfillment of the story of Israel. That's what Matthew's point is, I think. So earlier in Matthew, Jesus announces that the kingdom of heaven is at hand or the kingdom of heaven is near, depending on what translation you read. It's coming, it's at hand, it's near, get ready. So if you're an Israelite, you're thinking, it's about to go down. Jesus is about to instigate some revolution and overthrow the Roman oppressors who were ruling over them at the time. But we come to see that Jesus is not that kind of king and that, that rev his revolution is not that kind of revolution. He will not establish power in a typical way of the world using violence. So Jesus actually goes around to all these little small towns and he's just preaching the gospel of the kingdom is what Matthew says. He's preaching the good news. That's what the gospel means. It's just good news about something that has happened that means everything is about to change. And that something is that Jesus is the king. He's arrived and he is beginning to establish his kingdom. And he basically just heals so many people. He's showing us that when God's kingdom, come, when God's kingdom comes into a place, it gets rid of the effects of sin. 
So that's what Jesus is doing. He's healing people. He spends time with the lowly and the sick and the sinners. Um, so to put it simply, kingdom of heaven that Jesus was talking about and that he demonstrated with his life is not what people thought. Um, so he uses these interesting and these confusing parables to draw people in who are curious and humble. And for some, it works. But for others, they can't see past their original expectations of what they hoped this king would be for them. And so they actually reject Jesus. So kingdom of heaven, as Jesus uses the phrase, refers to the current and future rule and reign of God on the earth through Jesus. So today we're looking at a very short but beautiful parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl. So that's Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. And I'll read them now. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. It's a very short passage. The explanation of it will be short because it's simple, and it's one of the rare passages in the Bible where what you see is what you get, I think. There's not a lot to kind of like uncover. Um, it's simple and it's beautiful. We'll make just a few notes, and then I'm going to leave you some time to reflect on a couple questions at the end of this. Um, so we established earlier the kingdom of heaven refers to the incoming rule and reign or the authority of God on the earth through Jesus. Um, Jesus is comparing his kingdom, his lordship, to treasure that's hidden in a field. So let's talk about this. Banks were not a readily available life amenity to most people in the first century. So people would bury, literally bury their treasure to keep it safe. Um, they would keep it safe in case they had to go on a long journey or something and be away from their home, or if they were afraid that some invading force was kind of threatening to come into their country, they might bury their treasure so that it would um, stay there if their house was plundered from bad guys. So um, potentially someone could bury a treasure and not come back to their property for some reason. Either they had to leave and could not come back or they died or something like that. So a person could feasibly be working in a field, digging around holes for crops or whatever people do in fields and come upon a buried treasure. Um, and in case, maybe you had never have, <laughs> if you ever wondered about the morality and the legality of this character in the parable, um, we'll just nerd out really fast. If a person found the treasure, if he was working for someone, so he's an employee of the employer who owns the field and he's telling his employee, please go plow this field for me and dig up stuff. Um, if he found this treasure and lifted it out of the ground, that was done on company time, so to speak, so that treasure would belong to the owner of the field, his employer. Um, however, if he left it in the ground and then went away, he didn't lift it out yet. If he left it in the ground, went away, and like this parable says, bought the field, then he could go back and find it because only he knew where it was and the treasure would be his. So legally, the guy could be digging, find the treasure, don't touch it, cover it back up so no one can find it, sell all you have, go buy the property, and then when you own the property, the treasure is yours. Jesus is not at all trying to give us a discourse on the morality and the legality of like, found treasure with respect to land ownership. He's likening this whole scenario to the kingdom of heaven, 
So the kingdom of heaven, the rule and the reign, and, and really what it, what it is like to be in it, to be involved, to be in, under Jesus' rule and reign, according to this parable, is so valuable and so precious that this, when this man stumbles upon it, it says with joy, he joyfully sells everything that he has so that he can buy this field and that the treasure could be his. He went all in. Almost like if you were shopping in an antique shop and you saw something wasn't marked for sale, but you're like, that's a $2 billion item. I know it. I know its value. And you don't even think about it. You just leave and you go sell your house, your cars, you liquidate whatever assets you have, you get your retire- empty your retirement accounts, and you just buy the whole shop because you're like, I don't want to mess around with just trying to buy that thing. I'm just going to buy the shop because that's where the valuable thing is. Um, and then, similarly, he says in verse 45, so we're moving on to just the next section, the word again there is meant to link the first section, the first guy's story is similar to the second guy's story. It says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Um, this, uh, one of the key differences between these two, um, these two people that are finding these valuable things is that um, this guy the merchant is likely, at least according to a handful of commentaries I read, this guy is likely a wholesale pearl dealer or something like it. He's a merchant and he's looking for pearls. He's on the hunt. He's scouring Craigslist and offer up in antique shops and estate sales trying to find valuable pearls because that's his job. He knows what to look for. He's on the hunt. The man in the field was just working and his shovel made a funny noise when he plunged it into the ground and thought, oh man, there's something in here. So there's, those are two differences. One was looking, one was not looking and stumbles upon it. But then this merchant, this pearl seller, finds it in verse 46. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So the pearl that he found to him was so valuable, it was worth liquidating everything he had, likely a lot of other pearls if this guy was actually a pearl dealer. Whatever he had on hand, he considered it worth getting rid of everything so that he could just own this one thing, not own it and sell it and get the money, but have this pearl that was of such value to him just to own in his possession. Um, So we have two dudes. One is minding his business, doing his work, stumbles upon this treasure. And the other is on the hunt, looking for pearls and looking for the one, like the one of great value. And they both find this valuable thing, this treasure, and they sell everything that they have so that they can, be, they can have it in their possession. So it's a short passage. That's all that I think is important, at least today, to uncover about this passage. But I do want to ask some questions and spend some time reflecting on what I think this might mean today and what some things, questions we can ask ourselves. So I want to quickly start by talking about what this parable is not saying. I don't think that 44 through 46, these two little short parables, I don't think that they're saying, uh, in fact, I know they're not saying that you can or have to buy your way into God's kingdom. You cannot sell enough things and bring enough money or possessions to anyone to get your way into God's kingdom. It doesn't work like that. And we know this clearly from other places in scriptures. Um, But also... It's not saying that you have to be empty of all material possessions in order to join the kingdom of God. And it could be easy to think that that's what it's saying because that's what these guys did. They sold everything they had so they could find this one thing. But I don't think that's what it's saying. You can't earn your way into life with Jesus. There's no entrance fee. And you don't have to have nothing in order to take hold of this valuable treasure. 
It doesn't require you to be poor, maybe in other words. So I don't think this parable is talking about what's required for entry into the kingdom of heaven. It's describing the value of God's kingdom. It's describing just how valuable and precious and treasurable it is to be under God's loving rule and reign. It's describing how good it is. There are other passages that talk about things that we do, that we do have to give up, things that we need to do or not do, um, talk passages that talk about needing to be financially generous with people. I just don't think that this is one of them. I think this parable is saying that before you met Jesus, your life and your values, all that you have, all that you hold dear, which might include money, all that you would aspire to do and to be, your dreams, all of that is worth letting go of, loosening your grip on compared to what you have to gain in following Jesus and joining his kingdom. So the parable is not showing what a person has to do in order to follow Jesus. It's showing the value of following Jesus by showing what these people were willing to do. These people were willing to let go of everything because of the treasure that they found and how precious it was to them. So the question that I want us to think about today is not have you sold all that you have or are you super generous with your money or are you sold out for Jesus to use that phrase or are you hanging on to your material possessions? Those are fine questions to ask another time in another sermon. But the question for today is have you considered just how precious it is to be called a child of God and how good it is to be under his rule and reign, his good, safe, just, and righteous authority in your life. These parables establish the value of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Have you done an appraisal on the value of living life with Jesus? So my hunch is that for many of us, the problem might not be that we haven't given up enough things. It's that we just haven't looked closely at the treasure at our feet that we've just dug up or the pearl that we found. Makes me think about Philippians chapter three, verses seven through nine. Paul says, whatever were gains to me, all the good things about his former life before Jesus, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. One Bible scholar, D.A. Carson, kind of suggests an interesting um, angle or kind of application of this, and I'm, I'll just leave it here for us to ponder. <laughs> um, he suggests that because... Um, I'm not doing the quote yet, sorry. You can read it in advance if you want, that's fine. Um, because the pearl of great value is referring to Jesus and his kingdom, his teachings and his values, um, it's possible that the pearls that this pearl dealer had um, could be considered as other alternative um, options or alternatives to life with Jesus. So D.A. Carson says, Jesus is saying, not that you can buy your way into the kingdom, but that the person whose whole life has been bound up with, quote, pearls, 
And then he suggests um, non-committally the entire religious heritage of the Jews, maybe. Um, the person whose whole life has been bound up with pearls will, on comprehending the true value of the kingdom, as Jesus presents it, gladly exchange all else to follow him. So as I understand it, the idea I get is, in my mind is of this like devout Jew hanging on the words of different Pharisees and teachers and the rich history of the Hebrew people and the scriptures and accumulating this collection of pearls of knowledge and understanding and wisdom from the Hebrew Bible. He's got all this stuff, but then he finds, he's, he's a seeker of knowledge and wisdom and good things, but then he finds the message of the kingdom of God in Jesus. And he's like, give me that one pearl. That is what I need. That's the image that I have in my mind. So I have two questions to ask in closing. Um, it's not necessarily like a, now go and do this, church. Um, maybe, maybe that will come to you and, that, and Jesus will give you something that you should go and do. But these are questions to think on. And they're both rather abstract, so bear with me. Think about your life and how you met Jesus. Were you the guy who stumbled upon the kingdom accidentally digging in the field, so to speak? Or were you like um, the merchant searching for truth and found the pearl of great value? In other words, just think about how, how did Jesus find you in your life? How did you meet him and how did you decide to follow him? When's the last time you thought about that? The beginning. What changed in your life when that happened? Um, I was born using the imagery of the parable. I was born in the field with the treasure dug up and on display. My parents loved Jesus and brought me and my brothers up to do the same. Um, but I forgot its value when I was 17 and 18. I walked away out of that beautiful relationship with Jesus, found myself numb and depressed and stuck in sin. And I was still around the things of God. It was very strange. I was at church, but just completely checked out. And it's kind of weird. I've actually just started to piece together these other memories of my life then as shortly before I started coming back to Jesus. And I, my mom actually reminded me of one not too long ago. Um, and I, seriously, it feels like a foggy memory from a bad dream, but I can remember it now that my mom one night was praying for me when I was falling asleep. And uh, she just prayed in the name of Jesus and told, I remember her saying, Satan, you cannot have my son. And um, I don't know if it was the next day, but it was so shortly after that that I just, I just was driving to school one day out to Shemekin and I was like, oh my word, I'm delivered from whatever was happening in my life just now. I don't know how it happened. I didn't pray a prayer. I didn't do anything special. I just knew that God had delivered me out of that. And uh, I felt like I had been taken out of a dark haze and then just got like a breath of fresh hair, fresh air, not hair, weird. <laughs> I knew before then and I know now how precious and valuable life is with Jesus. I experienced life without him for a short period, life with my own pearls, so to speak, following my own dreams and desires and can honestly say like Paul, it was garbage, it was trash compared to the life with Jesus. That's the only life that I want to live under his loving authority as the king in my, in my world. 
So what about your life? How did you find yourself entering into God's kingdom? How did you and Jesus start? I'll give you more time to think about that after I ask this, this second question. Even more abstract, <laughs> do you feel like, do you resonate with these two dudes in the parables? When you read this story about a man who happens upon this treasure and in his joy sells everything he has to buy the field that the treasure's in, do you feel like him now as a follower of Jesus? Do you resonate with his joy and the drastic action that he took to take hold of that treasure? Or do you feel like this merchant who's got a collection of some valuable things, but you're searching for what you know is out there and you know is better, and do you remember dropping it all so that you could follow Jesus and possess that one pearl of great value? If you're anything like me, my answer is not like, oh yeah, totally, nailed it. I'm like super like both of them. Um, but when I, I've been reflecting on this, I just felt like a mixed bag of identifying with them, yes, in part, seeing the value of the treasure, but also wondering like, would I drop everything? Am, am I doing that in my life right now? Whatever that looks like, am I doing that? Am I properly valuing what it is to be in God's family and in his kingdom. Um, I really believe Jesus told this parable, Matthew slash the Holy Spirit recorded it, so that you and I, right now in this moment, would place ourselves into the story. Um, that we would lean into Jesus and reflect on what he's trying to teach us in this. And so I don't necessarily ha have, a, here's what I think our, each and every one of us should do when you walk out of here. Um, but I'm pretty sure that Jesus does have that for you. And I just want to ask you, do you resonate with these characters in this little short parable? And what might Jesus be trying to bring to your attention this evening? So would you just ponder on that for a little bit? And then we'll spend some time in worship.